1: Around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined today from Dunedin, but I'm not quite sure where in Dunedin. I'll find out in a minute. By Samuel Purdy. Kira Samuel. Hey.
2: Hello. Just by Woodho, by the way. Yeah. Woodho Gardens.
1: Very nice. How has your bubble life been?
2: Uh, yeah. Good.
1: I'm, Were you? I'm, did you? Did I'm you spend the lockdowns boring. in Dunedin?
2: Yes, I was actually in my flat, all alone. All my flatmates disappeared. Um, so yeah, I was just in my flat all alone, actually.
1: A bubble of one.
2: Yep. Yeah, and then all my critters. But. Yeah.
1: Did you end up talking to your critters? <laughs>
2: I got pretty loopy, but I wouldn't say I got that loopy. (laughs) So fortunately, no.
1: (laughs) So what critters are we talking about? Most people have pets like a cat and a dog, but I hear you have different sorts of pets.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I've got a giant centipede called Huranui. I have
1: a couple
2: of beautiful big black tunnel web spiders, one called Celeste, one called Jenny. I have and I don't think at the time I did but I do have a giant stick concept now called Hiwa Iterangi or Hiwa for short meaning the uh to do with Matariki and the star of granting wishes or aspirations or something along those lines
1: yeah okay you're gonna have to tell me nice and slowly why you have a centipede tunnel web spiders and a stick insect as pets
3: <laughs> well i
2: i kind of don't like to refer to them as pets because it implies kind of ownership or dominion and in reality i've kind of taken these animals from their environments and uh i also quite frequently use them for education purposes so i'll show kids and get kids to hold them and all that jazz and so because of that, I, f- I feel like it's a bit unfair. I guess technically they are my pets, but i just prefer to refer to them as what they are. Or um, I probably wouldn't, but I guess you could call them uh, the career associates because they're kind of like co-workers, I guess,
1: sometimes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Except they're doing it voluntarily. So, yeah.
1: So I so you do work at Orokanui?
2: That's right, yeah, yeah, I'm a part-time educator there.
1: And you amaze the kids with your co-workers?
2: Hopefully, yep. Yeah, there's certainly sometimes a bit of gasping and screaming and shock, but in reality, excuse me, in reality, most of the time people see these things and get quite fascinated by them. And uh, yeah, once the sort of shock's died down and they've actually got it in their hand, it's actually, oh, this thing's kind of cool, kind of cute. Kind of sweet, so,
1: yeah. So what got you into that kind of work with interesting co-workers?
2: Uh, well, I've just always been into <clears throat> these sorts of things, and I was doing an event with my university club, I think, and we were kind of educating some kids for that, so I kind of took some critters along. And then one thing led to another, and Taylor introduced me to Tahu, and Tahu liked the bug stuff, and she ended up offering me a job.
1: Wow! So this is this is a a, a thing that you do. Mm-hmm. And did it yeah, come and did it come naturally? Not just handling the critters, but doing the the education, the science communication around that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I've always been pretty into that sort of thing. So yeah.
1: So are you studying?
2: Yep, Yeah, so I'm just finishing up my postgraduate diploma in wildlife management. I'll be undertaking a master's by thesis only next year, uh, but yeah.
1: Have you got research in the postgrad diploma?
2: No, no. So I don't have like a specific project or anything. It's kind of a, just a year full of different papers um, and uh, field sort of some field trips and that sort of thing.
1: And you're going to do a master's next year?
2: That's right. Yeah, and I'll start my research <clears throat> this year. Um, well, yeah, kind of already have and then, yeah, write that all up next year after I've done my summer of field work.
1: So, so the summer you'll be doing research over this summer or the following that's summer?
2: That's right, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, this summer.
1: So yeah. that sounds like it must be something that's well underway. What are you doing?
2: I'm going to be conducting research on a recently discovered species of skink in North Otago called the alpine rock skink. Uh, it's a fairly high-altitude species of lizard. It was discovered by Tony Jewell in 2018, and it's an amazing, pretty large species of lizard. Um, and, yeah, there's a, although there's been quite a few surveys done and the odd observation, there hasn't really been any formal research research conducted on it other than survey work so hopefully my research will understand a bit more about the ecology of the animal and yeah how they're interacting with another species of large skink the scree skink.
1: How big are they? Uh,
2: So supposedly the alpine rock skink can have a snout to vent length so that's where you measure it from the snout to its uh, sort of cloaca, its vent And it has a snout-to-vent length of about uh, uh, perhaps up to 110 millimetres. So with a tail included, you'll have about double that. So probably maybe up to 22 centimetres, something like
1: that. Yeah. So sitting on a page, they would almost go the length of a page of A3, of of A4. Maybe a wee bit smaller. Yeah, so scree
2: skinks possibly could be about that big, maybe. Scree skinks tend to be a bit bigger, but the alpine rock skinks seem to be a wee bit smaller than that.
1: And the alpine rock, so the the clue's in the name, it lives in the alpine where it's rocky?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. But, um, yeah, that's the idea anyway, but hopefully... With some more surveys and stuff, we'll understand a bit more about it because myself and Kerry Knox, <clears throat> actually just this past weekend, we actually found a new site that these animals are from and the site that we found, they're at a much lower elevation than previously thought. So who knows what we'll find out this summer. It's all very exciting.
1: So you'll have to rename it the Lowland Swamp Skink.
2: Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's still, yeah, definitely... a. Uh, sort of alpine subalpine specialist, but um yeah, maybe not, yeah, might might it probably I, I imagine it wouldn't be found too far below where we've found it, but um who knows, I guess we'll just see what happens.
1: so you're going to spend the summer climbing mountains,
2: yep, yeah, more or less, which will be good fun
1: and how do you find them? is it have you got a have you got a duck caller or do you uh, equivalent or do you <laughs> go around calling under rocks?
2: Yeah, basically. So, <clears throat> when the weather's nice, you're basically just looking for them on the on the boulders and on the stones and on the screes, just looking for movement, looking for an animal basking. So, Kerry spotted a scree skink. It's Kerry Knox. He's a local herpetologist. He spotted a scree skink on the weekend, um, and that one was just sort of he saw its tail, and so I came down and we watched around, and then one came out on the rock basking. But um, in suboptimal conditions, when it's not nice and sunny, you'll be lifting stones carefully and seeing what's underneath them.
1: And that you, they're a lizard? Yep, that's right. So, yep. what does that mean in terms of their sort of, can you give us skink 101?
2: Skink, okay, well, I guess in New Zealand, we've got two major types of lizards. You've got these skinks, and they belong to the family Skinksidae, and you've got the geckos. They belong to a different group of lizards. Um, Yeah, so geckos don't actually have eyelids, so they have to lick their eyes to clean them, whereas skinks do have eyelids so they can close their eyes. And they also tend to have quite different scales to one another. We also have, have obviously, another reptile, the tuatara, but that's not technically a lizard. It's a a different group of animals uh, that's been around for quite some time. So,
3: yeah.
1: And is is that the... Is that a convenient classification difference this not having eyelids it, yeah
2: it, yeah there's 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 more technical stuff to do with scales and all that jazz, but um uh basically that's one of the major differences between them.
1: Can you look at one and know what it is?
2: yeah, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, geckos tend to have these great big big bulgy eyes. Um, their scales tend to be a lot more circular, whereas the skinks often, quite often, have sort of somewhat rectangular scales, and um, they tend to look a lot more sleek, and they're often quite shiny. Whereas the geckos don't tend to be like that; their skin's a bit more velvety, and uh, their toes are obviously quite different as well. Whereas skinks tend to have quite long, skinny toes with claws at the end and very small lamellae, which are basically these little pads underneath their toes. Geckos tend to have quite big toes sticky toe pads with quite big lamellae for climbing up different surfaces
1: and how are they doing what's their conservation status
2: it's not uh entirely understood with the alpine rock skink um the scree skink is classed as vulnerable so that's the um third ranking of threatened so it is a threatened species uh but the alpine rock skink at the moment it's not certain it's thought to be a threatened species, but the extent of that isn't entirely understood just yet.
1: And they, what what are the threats that they, that they face?
2: Uh, once again, that's also not entirely understood with specifically alpine rock skink, but probably like most other New Zealand lizards, it'll be your introduced mammalian predators, um, especially for a big skink like that. Things like stoats, cats, rats, all that jazz, they're pretty yeah it's not ideal to have these things running around with
3: them
1: let's take the first of your music selections let's have travis scott the plan why this one
2: uh it's from this recent movie that came out by christopher nolan called tenet it's a fantastic film i need to watch it again but um yeah i like the tune too good song
0: Last time I whipped around. last time I did the whippers, last time I did my first point of round, hit the reverend, last time I hit your crib, last time it went no tears. I done went back in myself. felt like hell, fuck I risked it, pace yourself, how you living, know you thrilling, off a sinning, how I got my strikes and pendants, back in out in the street, born this wild, let it be, rage out, gotta eat, not a vibe, but a way with the sound, by the way, kind down by the days, to myself, know that you with the moves, I'm juke of the juice. No, I'm juke, I be smooth and I lose. Yeah. I think our options up I'm a perfect random map I had to line it up I be swerving on the waves. It's like a line of words. Moving first on my turf. I'm out of line. I put in work. I draw the line and cross it first. I need the time. I need the searches, just like one and make it work. Skirt, skirt. In a verse. Skirt, skirt. Run and land. Bow and jet. Make it land. It's slow motion when I dance. In your eyes, I see a trance. I run away and do you prance. If I show the away, will you hide out and let it blam? Ain't no time of face the scams. i know. Yeah.
1: The holiday program going?
2: Uh, you mean with little canoey?
1: Yeah.
2: Oh, um, I didn't think of it necessarily as a work, uh, holiday program, but I guess we are doing workshops and things. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, Tahu's getting me jumping in the pond. Pretty much every time I'm up there catching things for the kids and stuff, and
1: now everyone seems to be enjoying it, which is good. Did I see a picture of quite a big looking lobster?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a freshwater crayfish, a kekewai. Or some people refer to them as koude. Um Yeah, pretty amazing crustacean that lives in the freshwater.
1: And that was just in the pond by the visitor centre?
2: That's right, yeah. You normally find them in streams and lakes and creeks, uh, but we've got a few in that pond that were put there at some point. I don't actually know who put them there or why specifically they were put there, but at some point they will popped in that pond.
1: Because they're outside the fence, but they wouldn't be affected by the fence anyway, you would think? Uh, It's hard to say for sure. Because uh,
2: introduced species of fish are excluded from the waterways inside the fence, uh, inside the sanctuary for the most part, Uh, they probably do do a bit better because they don't have things like trout preying on them, so... It's fairly anecdotal, but in my experience, I've found that creeks where there's trout, big trout, and things like that present you don't tend to see massive crayfish, but as I say that's anecdotal I can't say for sure whether that's the case or not but um I've also noticed too I was in the sanctuary one night with a friend Taylor, and we some of the crayfish were kind of crawling along the stones, sort of not even in the creek and that sort of thing and so can imagine if there's an opportune rat or something hanging around, maybe it would go for it. So I think they probably might benefit from the sanctuary, but it's hard to say for sure.
1: I didn't know that they had worked on excluding the exotic fish from the from the waterways there. Are there gates or something at the bottom?
2: Yeah, so there are these culverts at the top and bottom, and those uh exclude most things from coming up. I'm sure there's the odd introduced fish that gets in, but um yeah, uh This is one of the key challenges of eco-sanctuaries too, is being able to let natural migrations and things happen from the native fish, but also excluding not just exotic fish from getting in, but also things like uh, stoats that might squeeze up through a wee gate if it's open. Um, And yeah, places like Zealandia have even trialled using um, toxins uh, in the water to try and exclude species of exotic fish. But as far as I'm aware, we haven't used that approach here
1: what are the state of the invertebrates at the in the sanctuary? I, I would imagine that they would be a pretty good indicator of some sort of ecosystem health.
2: Yeah, so there hasn't been heaps of work done with the invertebrates at Aurokanui, and part of that is because uh, we don't really have any specific super big charismatic species like you might find elsewhere. There's been a lot of stuff done with... Um, Soil invertebrates, and so Jessica Chen she did her masters looking at soil invertebrates and how they differed inside the sanctuary versus the outside, and there was some mixed results there. Uh, in some places, in, in some instances, there was seemed to be more diversity in some of the habitats, but also um in some cases outside the sanctuary, uh, in some cases there were more species or it was more diverse or something along those lines. But uh, it's hard to say what's causing all of that. But uh. I think for some of the other invertebrates, they de- definitely do benefit because there have been studies done at other eco-sanctuaries like Mangatautari up in the North Island, the Waikato, and they've demonstrated that basically things like uh, ground weta, so they belong to a group of weta called the Hemianjurus, and also cave weta, which belong to a separate family of weta called Raphidophoridae. Those guys tend to do exceptionally in the presence of rats and mice. And so while well, those two groups appear to be doing okay in some instances compared to some of the other big wetter species. When you exclude rats and mice completely, or well, mostly, mice have always manage to find a way, and it seems, but when you exclude them mostly, uh, they pop off. Um, I recall reading something like 200 times the amount that they'd see outside the fence at somewhere like Mingatautari. It's pretty amazing, so I suspect similarly, some of those smaller inverts like ground wetter, cave wetter might be doing a bit better.
1: Are there any plans to translocate any invertebrates in?
2: Not that I'm aware of. Uh, Partly because there's not, to my knowledge, any sort of large, big uh, species known from the Dunedin area. Uh, It's possible that once upon a time we might have had a species of tree wetter uh, just judging by the distribution or giant wetter, but there's no real evidence to support that. It's just kind of a possibility more than anything. Uh, and I guess when you're spending a lot of money and doing these things, and you, you really need to have a compelling reason to do something like that. And it could be advocacy, so uh, or it could be restoring ecosystem function. And I'm not sure that there's certain invertebrates that would be... Super good for ecosystem function that we don't already have as well. So like if you look at Zealandia, they've put a giant wetter because obviously it's cool, cook straight, giant wetter. Like, wow, let's put that in there. But um because we don't or, or probably didn't, uh it's possible we might have. I'd like to think we did, but you can't really say for sure. You wouldn't really want to just go putting
1: things in there. What about the worm, the velvet worm, the is it peripetus? Yep.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: Would yeah. that have been peripetus there
2: normally? Or, um, Yeah, and they probably still are there, to be honest. I haven't had a good enough look around, but I suspect that within the sanctuary. And actually, velvet worms, although they're uh, kind of a group of concern, I I think a lot of that stems from uh, just a lack of research on them. There hasn't been too much studied about them. And I mean, yeah, a lot of people, oh, I've never seen one, you know. But like, I can pretty much find one every time I go and try and look. And it's kind of just a case of, learning a bit about them and understanding their habits and yeah for the most part you can find these things um, and that's not to say they're not susceptible to habitat degradation and predators they de- definitely are but I'm pretty confident that they'd, they'd be with an order canoe, I just personally haven't had a look around and seen if they're uh, in there yet.
1: So was the Cavisham one that was threatened by them when they put the motorway in, Is is that a some sort of subspecies or something, or was it just a known site of them? Yeah.
2: um, It it was just, so the species we have in Dunedin is called Peripitoides, in quotation marks, Dunedin, because it's an undescribed species. It hasn't been formally described yet. Uh, And the one in Cavisham as far as, like, it's the same species. But um, certainly at the time, there was a lot less known about them, and to be honest, there's still not heaps known. So, I think it was just more an awesome sort of thing that Dave Randall instigated by just kind of advocating for them and if it had happened it's not like they would have disappeared completely from Dunedin or anything there's still plenty of places you'd be able to find them but uh, I think protecting habitat like that and protecting these animals is definitely quite important Uh, and I think it's awesome what happened there yeah.
1: And I'm going to put your friend and mine Tahu right here.
2: Bubble sprite of the forest of the Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie.
4: Kia ora koutou, na mihi arohanui, kia koutou, koutou. Ho ho. Hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope that wherever you are and whatever is happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding. Very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day who you are. A triumph of nature's art. Perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. So as we know, we have moved through this very interesting journey together from lockdown level 4, level 3, level 2, level 1, 2, level 2.5, level 3, level 2.5, level 2, level 1. And now here we are again in a state of freedom, which is very exciting and it's a great credit to everybody that we have made it here. And we can say this of all life, every aspect of our life is a credit to all lives that have gone before us, contributing as we are to this process of constant co-evolution and growth. As we know, lockdown, an emergence into freedom has meant different things for all of us. And for Harvey Penfold and I, it's meant that we need to have a bit of time apart, need to give each other some space. And I think for all of us, when we are giving different aspects of our lives that time and that space to grow, it can like a big change and it is a big shift. And there are many things that we know that on one level, things are always changing, things are always evolving and developing, things are always shifting, the transitioning from state to state, way of being, way of being. And whilst this in one sense is permanent, we also have a deeper layer of being where we have that sense of oneness and permanence, connection with all life. And we know that that is eternal. So we have these different levels of connection that we can experience in our lives, enable us I think, to see what is underpinning these rapidly shifting and changing realities on the surface of our lives. So I'll be having the mighty Wu Mansion to myself and I'm quite enjoying thinking about the opportunity of that for my presence to grow and grow and grow and fill the Wu mansion and to be able to live freely live in a way that is completely of my own making. And of course, I also have Hastings and Poirot, the beautiful cats, and Countess Vera Rosikoff, Mahuika, Maya, Miss Lemon, and Lady Yardley, beautiful hens of hey, hey HQ. So I'm very grateful for these companions. And of course, I'll have all the beautiful love and all the beautiful friends around me now. In my life, I'm very lucky. And I really hope for Harvey, as he ventures forth up north and frolics about with his whānau, that his presence is able to grow and grow and fill the space that he is creating for. So I really hope for you, whatever shifts and changes this process of moving through lockdown into freedom has brought for you, that you are able to find new ways of feeling that sense of spaciousness that surrounds you, and you are able to invite your presence to grow and grow. Yourself to flower and fill those spaces. And I really hope that however things are changing around you, you can also take a wee step back, have a sense of that infinite and eternal, unchanging presence of which we are all a part, and a sense of how each thing you are contributing is making things better every day. And I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Cookie
1: you're listening to Blowing Bubbles. I'm talking with Samuel Purdy. What do the kids want to know? What, what questions are the kids asking?
2: Ah, oh, gee, it's it, it differs between kids. Sometimes they're asking, "Oh, does it bite? Oh, can it kill you?" Some are asking questions that, gee, I even this young kid Luca has been coming to Otakonui a lot recently, and he's got over. Thousand observations on iNet and this kid knows a lot and it's awesome, it's awesome to see but, and I actually value it a lot because uh, more often than not I can answer the kid's questions but quite recently man, he's been coming to me with some questions I'm like, gee, I don't actually know I don't know uh, so yeah, a lot of the time it's just about, yeah sort of certain care. like if it's a spider, they'll say, ah. Oh, is it going to bite you or how do they bite or what's it called or where do you find them? But yeah.
1: That citizen science is a interesting and important direction for places like Orokanui to be heading in. As I know it's being done. We we talked to Taylor about the kaka. Is it useful for people to be doing the same sort of things for for invertebrates for skinks and 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 gecko and things
2: oh absolutely I, i mean a lot of the most yeah a lot of the most awesome discoveries particularly with things like lizards actually stem from people spending time up in the mountains or someone walking along a track and by chance lizard walks across and oh it turns out to be a super rare you know like with the cupola gecko up in the northern south island you know uh some guy just happened to be walking along and a gecko crossed the track and sent it into doc and oh my gosh, this thing hasn't been seen for ages and then you send in herpetologists and they're struggling to find it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really important that people report these things, whether it's on iNaturalist naturalist or to doc. Um, and I, yeah, I definitely think with invertebrates, it can be good too. Cause you know, there's, while there is a lot known, there's also a lot that isn't known. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's always good to take photos of things. If you think it might be a little bit different or unique, take a photo of it, definitely. Um, and, yeah, a lot of cooler, uh, cool, what do you call it? Like a uh, bio blitz, that's the one, bio blitz. Those, I think, are cool events too where you'll get a whole bunch of people in the community and you'll just go and search a bunch of habitat and see what you can find. And I think that sort of thing is really good and really important to get the people engaged
1: in too. It's unfortunate that people have such a fear of spiders in particular. That's never been a problem for you, I take it.
2: Well, not particularly. However, when I was young, I didn't like white-tailed spiders. And that was largely because of these ideas that get perpetuated about it. it's, It's a horrible spider and it's dangerous and... Also, I did have a wee experience, and so that combined with this experience, one morning as a kid, I woke up and kind of put my head over the side of the bed, and there was one crawling towards my face, and I was like, freak out, um, but then one day, I was like,
3: nah,
2: I like spiders, I like, what am I, why am I being such a wussy, so I just picked one up, and I thought, like, oh, yeah, I mean, it's not even that bad, and, and yeah, I, I definitely think it's important to try and dispel some of these ideas about things, so with the white tail, there's this idea that it's super dangerous, and uh, I think that there are some cases where it can cause issues. I think there are some cases cases where bites can get infected. It hasn't been scientifically demonstrated in New Zealand, but I think sometimes anecdotal evidence for something like this that's really hard to test robustly using the scientific method, I think it is important to consider and not just go, oh no, those people are dumb, they just got a wee thing or whatever. So well, I think something like a white tail could potentially result in just like a wee infected wound or something, I don't think at all there's something that we need to hype up and oh they're because it just gives people bad ideas about these things and I, I think at the end of the day they're marvellous creatures and quite important creatures that we need to take care of.
1: During the lockdown people were reporting that the birds seemed to be more abundant than, than usual and there's there's lots of discussion about whether or not it's just that people were noticing them or in fact the birds did appreciate the the fact that we weren't rushing about so much was there anything noticed in the behavior or frequency or something of the the, the rest of of the you know, the invertebrates in particular um not sure not not
2: that I'm aware of uh, with the birds I, as I, I i think similarly it could be Sort of like a, a sampling bias where people are spending more time looking out windows,
5: oh, nature,
2: and so I see things. I, for me personally, I'd I'd normally am out doing things, but being in my room, I look out and I see heaps of fantails in the neighbor's garden and so many fantails, way more than I normally see. But that could just be because i was spending time out of the house. But yeah, in terms of invertebrates, I'm not too sure. Although. What was quite cool is that uh, some people used it as a time to understand invertebrates quite a bit better. And actually, uh, Stephanie Godfrey from the university, she actually, while lockdown was happening, did a wee study of her own in her own backyard on sombrero spiders, looking at their sort of social interactions and everything, which I thought was quite cool. Yeah.
1: That notion of these little worlds happening right in front of us that we don't normally notice. No,
2: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely
1: changing scale a bit to human society have you noticed anything over the pandemic that you think will stick or you that you hope will stick
2: um i think that the use of technology might um zoom became quite a sensation over lockdown and i think that might be used a bit more for meetings and stuff when people are far away and for convenience. But other than that, I'm I'm not too sure. I, I admire New Zealand's response to it for the most part. I think everyone did a great job and kind of just – I mean, everyone just kind of got – you know, you go to the supermarket and, I mean, everyone just kind of doing their thing. There's no one screaming about, freaking out like you might have in other countries or funny dramatic scenes happening. It was kind of just normal. Like, everyone kind of just – yeah – just got on with it.
1: What do you think we can learn from the response for the bigger questions, things like climate change?
2: Uh, I'm, I'm not too sure what you're asking.
1: We've responded pretty well to this threat. Oh, right. But there's bigger threats, longer term threats, even intergenerational threats, that we're doing a pretty good job of ignoring or at least, yeah. at, at least addressing very poorly.
3: Yeah,
2: I, I, I think, unfortunately, it's a different cup of tea because with COVID, we have this immediate threat where, oh, shoot, actually, on the news, this person died, this person died. Oh, I know someone who died. Oh, look, there's all these people going to hospital, they're getting sick, they're dying. With climate change, it's not really like that. It's these obscure communities of animals and stuff getting affected and... Uh, communities living in the Pacific and stuff and in lowland areas which we don't really have too much to do and quite frankly many people don't care about or think about and so unfortunately it's it's sort of a um, people are just willingly ignorant about it it's, it's not uh, yeah I, I, th- I think unfortunately it's a different cup of tea where I think it's important to get people in power who understand science a bit better because otherwise you get these ideas uh, that kind of spread around that aren't really embedded in science and just because a charismatic person saying it everyone believes it and I think that that's an issue I think people need to think for themselves a bit more rather than listening to other people and just assuming everything's real that they say
1: and if, if the charismatic megafauna of the polar bears can't pull off people caring about climate change what hope of centipedes got?
2: Uh, I mean, exactly. Uh, This is the thing in, in New Zealand in particular, one of the challenges with climate change is we have these amazing alpine zones, which compared to some of our other ecosystems have remained relatively understudied, and there's more being done with that. But with climate change, you've got these niche shifts of predators where, as you can imagine, if are getting a lot warmer it means that predators can move higher up the mountains and a lot of animals uh, that are super rare and threatened are hanging on just because they have that refuge up in the mountains that predators don't like because it's real harsh real cold and these predators haven't had to adapt to that uh, and so if these predators move up then some of these animals things like rock wren things like alpine species of gecko like the orange spotted gecko These animals, which once might have been in the lowland, with the exception of alpine rock, uh, with the exception of rock Rock wren, some of these alpine animals, they may have once been in the lowland. And if these predators start moving up, it's a real problem. Um, So, unfortunately, some of these things don't have uh, too much hope. Even tuatara, for instance, their uh, their sex is determined by the temperature. And so, with increasing temperature, that mucks things up a lot and will select for. males as opposed to females which will be quite problematic so in that case it's cool that Otokonui has Tuatara because it means that uh, there's still a kind of cooler place where they'll be living but yep as much as I'd like to say uh, you know they'll be sweet it's hard to know for sure. Um,
1: That's making it really hard for me to segue into the second of your music choices (laughs) (laughs) titled We Are Gonna Be Okay.
2: Ah there we go no
1: so what gives you hope in that space oh. then
2: um oh i just the the young fellows really uh we've got a lot of older people and uh politics and a lot of old ideas and i think trying to show these young people uh a better light and showing them and getting them engaged because a lot of these older generations they didn't have super amazing visuals and animal documentaries and books and stuff. They kind of had to, in many cases, kind of just survive, you know, they had to work and work hard. And now that everything's a lot easier for people in most cases in New Zealand, uh, we have more time to have fun and check out wildlife a bit more. So I think that with these young guys getting into it, uh, I think that will hopefully help quite a bit because these kids will all grow up and go, actually, this is important. Nature is important. We should look after it. The environment is important. We should look after it. So that's my hope. Hopefully that works out. And I think things like predator-free 2050 um, or just the idea of predator-free in general, I think that will help a lot too because, I mean, just considering some of these offshore islands and, I get really emotional when I think, of oh, the mower, and oh, we had this lizard here, and oh, this... oh no. I remember I was up in, um, uh, up in Auckland, one of the parks there, I've forgotten the name of it, One Tree Hill, I was looking over the city, and uh, when I was with a couple of mates, Nick and Tim, and one of them was like, there would have once been robust skinks everywhere through here, and <laughs> robust skinks is uh, basically out larger species of skink this massive amazing thing they're only on offshore islands and you know i kind of couldn't help but shed a tear but also i'm like nah this is this is it's okay we'll we'll do predator control and we'll do eco sanctuaries and one day these things will be on the mainland so i think it's that idea that people have kiwis running around their backyards and that sort of thing that'll hopefully help with this sort of thing
1: i think the important role of the eco sanctuaries is not just of the the lifeboat effect but for that education role
2: Exactly, yeah, and and Ura Kunui is a bit like that as well, um, you know, That take the Otago skinks for instance, uh, it's, they're not known to have ever lived in Dunedin, um, but there's this real charismatic animal that's out in the open that people can see um, and get people engaged and Tākehē for instance, for a while there we had a fairly old couple of Tākehē which Common and Paku, they're amazing, but admittedly, they weren't contributing heaps to the Taka here recovery. But they're there to get people engaged and care about wildlife, which is what I think is important.
1: Okay, I'm going to play Dan Whitener. We are going to be okay. We are!
6: step into his business suit to collect his nine-to-five and his hour-long commute i shrug it on my shoulders and i know i look the part but now it's frayed along the inside will someone just give me a start away my hands still warm from a congratulatory shake they said can you start on monday guess i finally got my break i walked away still smiling in the corner of my eye it's just like you always told me you can make it if you try Bye, you blue.
1: I have some questions to end the show with, and not very much time to do it, so we're going to have to have quick answers. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years?
2: <sighs> uh, I got Wildlife Photographer of the Year um, for the Woohoo! Otago Museum Competition. Yeah. Cool.
1: What was it a picture of?
2: A Totuku gecko. It's an amazing species of gecko from the Catlins
1: congratulations on that one we are writing a book of these conversations it's called tomorrow's heroes it's our team of people doing good work so you're on our team what is the superpower that's got you into the mansion
2: Uh, hi it's a bit extreme but i love connecting with animals yeah i would like to talk to them properly but
1: yeah (laughs) do you consider yourself to be an activist
3: yeah
2: yeah activist for nature i guess
1: what motivates you what gets you out of bed in the morning
2: just how much amazing things are out there and how much is left to discover there's so many things left to find out there um so much so much to learn and uh, my wonderful girlfriend hannah as well she's awesome as well
3: so
1: And what's the challenge you're looking forward to in the next year or so?
2: My thesis. That should be a lot of fun. Be pretty hard work catching all these lizards and doing all that stuff. But um, it'll be a whole lot of good fun.
1: And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners?
2: Ah, oh, th- this is a simple one. Uh, don't don't squash all the spiders you see. You can quite easily just get a cup get a bit of paper, take them outside. They're not going to bite you. Just be nice and careful. Uh, the black tunnel web spiders, the anti-based spiders, if they're grumpy, they'll let you know. They'll lift their legs up and show you their fangs. Um, so, yeah, just take care of nature. Take care of spiders. And that's why I like to use spiders as an example because it's a good way to start. If you can get people to care about this you know, kind of freaky looking thing that can bite, then maybe they'll start caring about the bigger
1: picture and other things as well. Thank you very much for that. Let's go out to Marcus Turner's Spider in the Bath.
5: Here I am, is anyone about? I'm down beside the plug hole and I can't get out. I've been here an hour and a half. Can anybody help a little spider in the bath? I woke up feeling hungry in the middle of the night I saw a moth and thought, now that would make a tasty bite So I chased it up the mirror and along the windowsill and around behind the dental floss and then I slipped and fell And here I am Is anyone about I'm down beside the plug hole and I can't get out I've been here an hour and a half Can anybody help a little spider in the bath? The sides are very slippery Cos the bath has just been cleaned Everything is cold and wet and avocado green There's a long, lumpy loofah, and some pumice in a dish. And all I have to talk to is a purple plastic fish. And here I am, is anyone about? I'm down beside the plug hole, and I can't get Anybody help a little spider in the barn? There's no need to be frightened, I won't do you any harm. Just take me to the garden where it's nice and safe and warm. Then gently put me down and I'll run back home to my mother. One leg after the other, 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 after the other... Inside the plug hole and I can't get out. I've been here an hour and a half. Can anybody help a little spider in the bath? Can anybody help a little spider in the bath? Can Can can't anybody help a little spider in the bath? I'm down here by the plug hole.
1: There? Hello? You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu Mackenzie. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, and I've been joined from Woodhaw in Dunedin by Samuel Purdy. We hope you enjoyed the show.
0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.